0: Our text for this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The grass withers, the flowers fade. but The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing this morning on this time in your word. A sober scene, a sober season, and yet one that is headed towards such unimaginable glory. We truly do not understand what is happening here. This is not the way things work. So, Lord, please open our eyes. Open our hearts. Help us to understand. Help us to take in what you would have for us this morning. Feed your people, Lord. Build up your people. Glorify yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. Do you still have heroes anymore? Used to be Heroes used to be kind of a big thing. Of course, when I was a kid, it was superheroes. We, we went to the OMSI down in Portland this week, and they had a Marvel exhibit with all these superheroes, and it brought back memories from, from my childhood and not-so-distant childhood. Um, but I mean, at this point in my life, I find my, my interest in heroes shifting. Um, still drawn to people who challenge me, who, who live or act in certain ways that that, that cause me to think about myself and how I would do in those situations, but also in ways that are admirable, um, that are noble, that, that have a... It captures what we mean by good character or dignity. Um, there's a story just came across recently of George Washington. George Washington is one of those... Characters that just seems almost too good to be true. There's just something mythical about him. But, but there's a story about him uh, that's been passed on um, by his biographer. In the, in the 1750s, during the French-Indian War, there's a need for... This is when the, the British occupied what we now know as the States, and there's a war between the British and the French. Um, the British had some territory that the French were building forts on, Um, And the British were going to send word to, wanted to send word to them, very polite age, sent a letter to them saying, please remove your forts now or we will destroy you. So they were looking for someone to take this message to the French, and 21-year-old George Washington volunteered to take that letter. He had no experience, did not speak French, had no, no military or diplomatic experience at all. He gathered together a small team, thankfully including an interpreter, and was accompanied by a group of Native Americans as protection along the way. The whole thing ended in disaster. The French did not receive the letter. They rejected it out of hand. They bribed the Native Americans to switch sides and attack the Native Americans were very cagey about, you know, they were really on nobody's side, and so they were willing to kind of play one against the other, and so they joined the side of the French and attacked Washington and his people, and so they were forced to retreat. They needed to take word back to their command about what happened, but they also need to save their lives. The problem was this was in the wintertime and there were rivers to cross. And one of the, the larger rivers was not yet cold enough to freeze. Normally they would ride over, but it was still running. And so with, with people chasing them from behind, winter itself, they were, they were in desperate straits. In the midst of all of this chaos, Washington stopped to consider what they did and they ended up building a raft to get over. And the biographer says this, Yet George, who would be calm even when the bullets were whistling around him in battle, he was shortly to declare that he found the sound charming, remained temperate. He coolly assessed the situation rather than letting his emotions get the better of him. A lesser man might have panicked, might have scrambled back to try to rejoin his party. George's presence of mind, his ability to retain a cool head in a heated circumstance, to retain, restrain his emotions, continued to stand him in good stead. I don't understand that mindset. I don't understand how you choose to do that in a moment like that. I don't understand how a 21-year-old can do that. I work with 21-year-olds. That's not how they think. And there might be something here of, of a little bit of inflating the story of what really happened, but he was a unique character. He was someone who very much understood his place as a leader and the kind of Person that he needed to project as a leader of other people. Um, that I, I find admirable, worthy of imitating, trying to understand what that's like. I don't know if we often think of Jesus that way. I think we, we recognize Jesus as, a, as God, the Son of God, we, we recognize him as our Savior. And I, we know that we're told to imitate him, but I don't know how much we actually pause to reflect on his character. But, but there are some striking similarities between the story we're reading and, and the story I just read you about Washington that, that I want for us to consider this morning. So I want to I do this in a couple stages. First, I want to kind of do a sweep through this story again and, and point some things out. This is unfortunately one of those things that, that is burdened with the curse of familiarity. We know this story, we know what happens, but we know it well enough that we may not have paid attention to the details or not grasped some of the things that are happening underneath the surface here that that a closer read, I think, reveals. Um, And then I want to point out a couple of things in particular that stand out going on here that I I want us to consider and then conclude. So let's let's look at this passage. Jesus has been arrested. Uh, Just let that sentence hang for a minute. It's important for us not to treat this as a story, but something that happened. And I think it's valuable, valuable for us to consider at ground level what that must have been like. That's part of what Lent is there for, is to get us to inhabit what happened, to, to reflect on what that must have been like. That, that arrest was, was shocking, was stunning. It took them by surprise because the week began with what? A triumphal entry. Jesus coming into the city with shouts of praise, with people bringing out the messianic praises of God. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That wasn't just a popular saying. That was was significant to the moment. The Messiah has come. And Jesus did nothing to tamp that down. He received all of that and then proceeds from entering into Jerusalem, into the royal city, with that kind of acclaim, with that kind of noise, the, the city was shaken by, by the celebration, goes into the temple and cleans house as though he owned the place. If you're a disciple, things are looking good. We're finally rolling. We're not, we're not messing around Galilee anymore. We're not wandering our way through. We're moving with a purpose now, and he's going to do it. He's going to take on Jerusalem, and then he's going to take on the Romans. This is happening, and that's all balled up in the expectations of the Messiah. This is a good week to be a disciple. Stuff's happening. He's he's acting like the Messiah. The the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to confront him. He's just silencing them with his responses. Nobody can stand in his way. And three days later, he's arrested, betrayed. What happened? Where where did this go off the rails? And, And it's only going to get worse. But I don't want to spoil that. So Jesus is now in the custody of a large crowd. John adds a description. This is a collection of Roman soldiers and Jewish officers. The question is, where where does this go from here? What all has happened? The shock was enough that it scattered the disciples. They were not equipped. Even though he had warned them, they were not equipped for what was happening. So Jesus is taken by this group to the home of the high priest. It's a full house. Everyone representative of Jewish leadership is there. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Scribes are sort of the the experts of the law, the legal experts, the theologians, if you will. Everyone's there, and they conduct this hearing. The fact that this happens at night, we get some indications that they went straight from Gethsemane there, but we also have the warming fire that Peter and the others gathered around the fact that this happened at night suggests both a desire to be secret, to get this, but also to get this done. They were desperate to do something about Jesus. From, from the eyes, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the religious leaders, in the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus was a problem that needed to be dealt with or things were going to go very bad very quickly. And so they conduct this trial, and they bring just a, a series, a parade of so-called witnesses that are brought up with all kinds of accusations we get some sense of that where they, they, they repeat Jesus' words. I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days with my own hands. All sorts of accusations come up. Trying to come up with something, anything that they could pin on him. But they couldn't find anyone to agree with another. Which is a fascinating detail. Because in the midst of this, they, they had to know they were doing something wrong here. They were not being completely above board in this. They, the conclusion for this trial was already known, right? Jesus was not coming out of this clean. We were gonna get him on something, and yet and yet, they, they wanted to make sure that they were doing this with some semblance of being above board. We're not going to do this on just the first person who comes up. We gotta find some agreement here. And they're frustrated in that effort because they couldn't get these clowns to agree on anything. But here, here's where I want to pause and ask the question, how, how did we get here? We, we see in Mark's gospel, beginning back in chapter 3, that they've been after him for quite a while, beginning with when Jesus healed a man's hand on the Sabbath, a, a miraculous occurrence. But, but the, the outcome of that for the religious leaders, they, they did not focus on the healed man so much the fact that he broke the law, he broke the Torah. And so they, the Pharisees, met with a group called the Herodians to find some way to destroy Jesus. In Mark's words, why? Well, as I said, in, in their eyes, Jesus was a threat. He, he rejected their teaching of the law. He broke the Sabbath repeatedly. He ate with sinners repeatedly. He even at one point presumed to forgive sin. That's something only God can do. Who do you think you are? Who's this guy from Nazareth, anyways? What does he know? Where did he come from? Who gave him the right to do this? He not only rejected the teaching of the law, but he he regularly challenged their own leadership. They were often the butt of his parables. They were the punchline. You're the ones in this parable that are wrong. You're the ones that are not seeing things. In fact, there are those here among these outsiders, these sinners, these Gentiles. There are some here that will be entered into, brought into the kingdom, welcomed into the kingdom by God before some of you Pharisees and some of you scribes. How dare you? Most significantly, he had become tremendously popular with the people. He connected with them in a way that the leaders hadn't. And then, of course, all, all the signs and wonders. How do you stop him? We've got to stop him, but they couldn't take him in a debate. He always bested them in debates. They had nothing to say, and it became embarrassing for them, in fact, and if they tried to make a public move against him, they were terrified that the people would turn on them, so they had to do something. At the very least, he put Israel at risk to Roman intervention. He was someone that could cause an insurrection or a revolution, and that would bring the full weight of the empire down on them. The Roman Empire did not like revolutions. And the way that they did that was fairly simple. Everybody dies. We don't want that. At the very least, we don't want that. The worst case scenario, though, for them was that he was a false prophet who would not only lead the people away from true faith in God or right faith in God, thus dooming them once again. And if You know, if you can recall from when I've talked about this before, the background of the Pharisees and the religious leaders was one based in the history of Israel. We were God's chosen people, and we blew it. We turned away from God. We served other gods. We're the ones who broke covenant with him. And because of that, now we are under Rome, just as we were under Greece and under the Persians and under the Babylonians and the Assyrians. That is the the result of our unfaithfulness to God. And the prophets were just this parade of reminders. You are here because of your unfaithfulness, but also, but God is going to remember his covenant with you someday and come back for you who are, who are righteous, who are found faithful. And so, so the pursuit of the law among the religious leadership was not simply some sort of crass self-righteousness project. They were not simply trying to be better than anyone else. They saw this as a reclaiming of their heritage as the historic covenant people of God. We want to get back. We want to get back to the place where God's favor was on Israel like it was in David's time, at the beginning of Solomon's reign. We want the glory of God to be displayed through us in the earth. Not with these pagans, these outsiders who were a constant and regular reminder of our failure. Come, Lord. So there was this hunger for God to act and understanding that the only way to do that was to keep to his law. So that's why there's a desperation to all this. We've got to do something. But there's two challenges here. They had to come up with a charge, first of all, that the people who loved Jesus would accept. And then secondly, they had to come up with something that would get the Romans to act. Because here's, here's the thing. You see this played out in the other gospel accounts. The, the Jews had no actual authority to execute anyone. That was, the status, that was their status under Roman rule. They were not autonomous in, in some key areas. And this is one of them. So they had to go to Pilate to get him to act on this. But they had to have something substantial to get him to move. Otherwise, it would be dead on arrival. So they had, to, they had to go through this process to find Jesus guilty of something. So that's the background. Come back to the present. There's this chaos. All these different accusations flying. no, Not really getting any progress at all when finally the high priest steps up. You kind of get the sense that maybe at this point he's like, guys, this is dumb. Let's stop this. What do you say to these things? You haven't said anything, Jesus, this whole time. What do you say to all this? Jesus put in the center spot. I mean, imagine that room full of people that are trying to get something on him and being asked that question. There's an intimidation there coming from the high priest himself. This is his house, this is his place. These are all his people. What do you say to this? And nowhere along the way has Jesus responded to anything. He didn't laugh, he didn't debate. He didn't argue. He didn't he didn't take on his full stature as God and silence this nonsense. He remains silent. I Almost, almost wonder if in the in the high priest's question, is he asking him, are you agreeing to what they're saying? You said nothing. Is your silence condemning? Or do you have a defense? And Jesus gives him nothing. So then the high priest plays this last question directly at him. I, I don't know if this is something that Jesus would have had to answer, but it's, it's hard to dodge answering this one, it seems. Are you the Christ? Who are you? I am. And you can imagine, probably a silence like what we just had. Are you the Christ? Yes. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the room just erupts. We got him. We got him. We've got the charge blasphemy. That's a term that we we maybe have heard but don't quite understand. But in, in that context, it was any person, any human. Claiming any sort of equality of any kind with God, even just to be in his presence. So the, the claim to be Messiah might have been problematic enough, but it might not have by itself risen to the level of blasphemy. But what he says next about sitting at the right hand of God did. That, that tells you something, and maybe something that we lose sight of is how, how Jewish people understood the holiness, the holy nature of God. It, it, it was down to the level of you don't even say his name. You don't even write God out in full. That is holy, that is sacred, and any sort of minimizing that distinction between us and the holy God is blasphemous. So they got the charge. It's a charge that, that was worthy of death under the law, and they've got a room full of witnesses. Let's go. So they pronounce the death sentence. And now he can be taken to be handed over to the Romans to deal with. Two things that I want to note in all this. The first is, is the tragic behavior of the Jewish leadership. Tragic because out of all of Israel, these were the ones who had most devoted their lives to preparing for the Messiah's arrival. They just, they studied and they sacrificed, typically from, from a very young age. They, they literally spent their lives doing this. They gave and they fasted. They could give evidence in all kinds of ways that they had done what was required to be part of the righteous remnant of God. They, they, they could, with good reason, look around at those who didn't keep to the law and say, what's wrong with you? Why don't you care about God? Why don't you care about the law? Why don't you care about faithfulness? We're taking this seriously. They believed that when the Messiah came, he would recognize them and their efforts. I mean, that's that's the flow of the prophets, right? Part, part, of, the, part of the meaning of God coming again for the righteous remnant was to affirm their righteousness. They were ready. They were striving to be ready. And they believed that when He would come, the Messiah would recognize Him. Except He didn't. At least this one didn't. What's all this for then? Was this all for nothing? Doesn't seem to be any point here. Moreover, where they stopped to consider whether He was speaking the truth. They were so committed to this way that it was the only way they could see. There, there doesn't seem to be much reflection of maybe we were approaching this all wrong or maybe we've looked for the wrong kind of Messiah. Maybe we're not seeing things clearly. It doesn't seem to be much reflection that way. They were so committed to their understanding of how, how they ought to live and what God required of them. And so in return, they refused to recognize him. The ones Who devote their lives to serving God, to being righteous before God, to being prepared for the Messiah, could not recognize the Messiah and became his enemies. Which John just so wonderfully captures in that line, he came unto his own, his own received him not. That's tragic. That's terribly sad. It's hard to comprehend. There's also something, I think, in there of a a cautionary tale for us as Christians. Because we all desire, all of us who are Christians, desire to follow God, be faithful to God, be found righteous before God, with all the appropriate theological framing. But is it possible that we likewise could fail to know God in our pursuit of knowing God? Is it possible that we could get so caught up in our way of of pursuing God, living faithfully before Him, raising our kids, all the different choices, all the different values that we hold? Is it possible that we could build this up so much that we fail or, or cannot recognize God anymore as He is? How do we read the scriptures? As something that agree with us or something that continues to ask that question of us? Do you really understand? Do you really know me? So that's one. The other is Jesus' own response. It's just remarkable. He he why didn't he say anything? Why didn't he fight? He was entirely in the right here. He was not only innocent, he is the Messiah. He is God. Even that, that charge that got thrown out there, he said he could, build the te- he could tear down the temple in three days and rebuild it again. He could. Like, there's nothing there that could stick on and he could come back and just say, do you know who you're talking to? If you fear God, you would shut up right now. Sorry, kids. You would fall on your face before me. This is over. You have no right. And he doesn't. He does nothing to stop it. He endures everything that they throw at him. And now the remaining times when he does say something from here on, at, at least on one occasion, it was as a prayer for God to forgive them. How was he able to do this? And this is this is where I think it's important to kind of reflect on this and, and consider the character of Jesus, because it's easy just to have the Sunday school answer, well, he did it because he's Jesus, as though that answers the question, but it doesn't answer the question for us. It doesn't help us. Because where this is going, Peter will pick up and say, He did this as an example to us. And so if all we do is say, Well, he, he did that because he was Jesus, then that's the answer for us. How do we do this? Because he's Jesus. And, (laughs) how do we do this? Well, we're told. Or we can see in Scripture that, first of all, he was able to do this because he knew who he was. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew, and that knowledge by itself gives, you know, if you know that, that, that gives you a place to stand against anything that would say otherwise. He knew absolutely who he was. Moreover, he knew who they were. And this is important. I think that prayer of Jesus for God to forgive them while they are crucifying him is important. He knew that they were not the real enemy. We we live in a time that's so shaped by this, this attempt to put people in the category of either good or evil. But that's not how Jesus looked at them, even though what they were doing was evil. He pitied them. He saw that they were blind, he saw that their hearts were hard, and moreover he knew that behind them was a real evil. It was not them, it was what was behind them that he was fighting. They did not fully understand what they were doing. Third, he knew the plan. He knew that this was the purpose of the Messiah. That he was here to die. That all of this was not everything going off the rails, but this is all part of the purpose. That all these different things, and that's, I mean, just to take another step back for a moment, and to consider all the intricacies of this last week, and what happened, and who did what, and who said what, and who planned what. All along the way, the book of Acts tells us all this happened according to the will of God, that at the end, the culmination will be Jesus dying on the cross at the hands of the Jews. staggering how God works in the world that we inhabit, staggering the ways that we just do not comprehend. And he knew that and was not afraid. And then lastly, Peter tells us that he entrusted himself to the Father, which is both a statement on the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus and the Father are one and yet, Jesus, as he faced these kinds of, this kind of chaos, this kind of opposition, he was able to entrust his case to God the Father as judge, knowing that he would vindicate him. He did not have to stand up for himself. The almighty God creator would vindicate him when it mattered. And so he could take it. He could face it. He's able to stay calm, maintain his poise, keep his focus all the way to the cross. In order to carry out God's purpose to gain our redemption. It's interesting, I was thinking about this this morning. Is it interesting, all the different themes that we write hymns about or sing songs about. Have we ever written or sung one about the quietness of Jesus? We have this martial imagery of going out to war, going out to battle, of ruling and reigning, all these expressions of power. But where's the songs about the quietness of Jesus before his accusers? Where's the quietness of Jesus when he's being wronged, when he's being mocked, when he's being killed? And like, like the steadiness of a George Washington, like, like the, the calmness in the face of danger, like, like missionary martyrs throughout history phenomenal stories, this is admirable about Jesus. We don't simply admire him because he's God, we admire him because he's admirable. We worship him because he's worthy of worship because this is what he's like. Because real character, real nobility is expressed in the ability to stay calm, to not be moved in the face of their own suffering, their own injustice, their own danger for a greater purpose. And that's what we see on display here. He is worthy of our worship because he is his character is remarkable. And as Peter tells us, is the example for us to follow. So if you turn to me to first Peter two. Peter, most likely reflecting on this very scene, writes, "...Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure?" He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The, the act of Jesus' death is a capitulation in one sense to injustice in order to gain our salvation. And injustice in that moment did not win. It was fully paid for in Christ. But all the way to the cross, He did not fight it. He did not push back against it. He did not scream or rage or legislate or complain. But for our sake, He endured it. And for our sake, He brought us home. We are his sheep now. He is our shepherd. He is our overseer. And in a change of metaphors here, as his disciples, we are now to walk as he did. That's hard. That is hard in the times that we live in. Disciples not just someone who learns or follows, but one who imitates, who, who becomes Christ-like which means that imitation is more than simply doing, but it's a manner of taking on the same mindset. The world we live in is still gripped by the same chaos of that night. Jesus is rejected. He's hated by people who do not fully understand what they are doing. And as disciples, we ought, not, we ought to expect the exact same toward us. And it won't be Right. It won't be fair. It won't be just. We will not deserve that. And that's that's in the. This is in the big things. That I, you know, sometimes we get in mind these these big, massive, apocalyptic confrontations between Christians and the forces of evil. But this is in the day to day life as well. The opportunity to to show forth the character of Christ in our lives is in the moment to moment of life. Those moments when we're tempted to push back, to fight, to argue, to complain. We will face these same things, and yet Jesus showed us how we are to respond. And like Him, in order to respond in the same way, we have to have the same assurances that He did. We need to understand who we are. Do we know who we are? Do you you know that you belong to Christ? If anyone is Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Are you there? Do you know that you're there? Do you know that the way there is not that hard? And it's not a feeling. It's a commitment of faith and trust in God. Faith and trust in Christ. That's a work that He enables us to do, but that's it. The the day-to-day reflections of our own failures and and sins and all that stuff does not change the fact that we are still new creations in Him if we hold to Him. Do you know that? Or or are you still battling the am I in today or out today? You, You will not stand if that's where you are. You need to know that Christ has accomplished what is necessary for you to be in Him now. belong to him. Second, we understand who our enemies are, really are. Do we know that? Culturally right now, we are demonizing all kinds of people. We are making others around us the enemy, which makes it easier for us to just block off whole swaths of people that annoy us, we don't like, disagree with us, etc. But they're not our enemies. There is an enemy those around us are captive to that enemy. We're to look at them with different eyes. We're to respond in a different way. When we are faced with people who are difficult, we respond with gentleness and kindness and patience, not wrath. That means we need to understand who our enemies really are, do we? Third, do we understand our purpose? I mean, this passage in 1 Peter is just so blunt. This is your calling to suffer unjustly to the glory of God. That's hard, especially for us who as Americans value so much our rights and our own dignity and the ability to defend ourselves against any injustice. How dare you? But if anybody could say, how dare you to injustice, it's Christ. And he set that aside. He emptied himself of that. And we are to do the same. Well, that means that the bad guys win. For now. That's where the last point comes in. We also need to know that we can entrust ourselves to God. That's not just a tagline at the end where we can, you know, we just simply say at the end, well, we know we can trust in God as though that's going to do anything. That's real as anything. There's a time where God will judge the earth and nothing will escape it. Nothing will escape his gaze. Everything will be laid open before him and he will do what's right if anyone can do what's right. He will judge justly if anyone can judge justly. Don't let the space of years Deaden or numb us to that reality. That is a certainty that we can rest in. And if God for this season ordains that we suffer, we don't lose heart. We don't fight back. We look to our Savior and we become like Him. Let's pray together. Lord, the more we see of you, the more we read of you, the more we hear of you, the more worthy of our praise, of our admiration, of our imitation you become. If only you were God, that would be enough. But you are a great God. You are a wise God. You are a powerful God. You are a noble God, robed with dignity. Righteousness and justice kiss on your throne. You embody all the things that we are drawn to, admiring and worshiping. You alone are worthy. Lord, help us. Help us to live as you intended for us to live. Help us to follow in the footsteps of our glorious and dignified and noble Christ. Help us to have the assurances, the confidence, the knowledge that establishes us, enables us, Lord, to, like Christ, face chaos with an unnatural, unearthly calm. Help us to look like you in this world. That you would be glorified, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.